Welcome to everyone to the MPI Europe webinar, uh, Climate Change and Migration, Converging Issues, Diverging Funding. My name is Hannah Behrens. I'm the director of the Migration Institute Europe. Before we start the webinar, I would like to give you some further technical details as to the course of the webinar. So if you have a problem accessing the webinar, please contact us at events at migrationpolicy.org or at the number written on your screen. There's no voice Q&A, so if you want to ask a question to the panelists, which we of course uh, stimulate you to do, please use the Q&A function, the chat function on the right of the screen throughout the webinar, or you can also write us at events at migrationpolicy.org or tweet at migrationpolicy or hashtag MPIDiscuss. Uh, later today, uh, the audio of today's webinar will be available uh, at our website, migrationpolicy.org slash events. And I'm uh, joined today by a distinguished set of panelists. Uh, firstly, uh, Mr. Francois Gemin. He's the director at the Hugo Observatory on Environment, Migration and Politics at the University of Liège. Um, also, Ms. Dorothea Ryszewski. She's the head of, of the program, the Global Program Sustainable Management of Human Mobility in the Context of Climate Change at the German Corporation for International Cooperation, GIZ. And we're also joined by Ms. Moa Westman. She's a social development and climate change, a climate action coordinator and gender specialist at the Euro Investment Bank. But before I hand over to Francois, let me first introduce uh, why we are doing this. Um, both climate change and migration are high on the agenda of uh, policymakers in Europe. Um, as soon as the new commission took office at the end of 2009, it uh, announced that the Green New Deal and the new pact on migration and asylum would be one of the many uh, flagship projects that it would pursue in its tenure. Um, and yet, if we, if we have a look at those two prominent policy themes, it's often hard to detect the interconnections. And why is that the case? Well, partly this may be an issue of the institutional setup. The portfolios of migration and climate change may be the responsibility of different units, and those units may have little incentives for the moment to talk or coordinate with one another. But what complicates the matter also is that there's still a lack of knowledge of how different climate events um, give way to human mobility or, on the contrary, may leave people trapped in very risky situations. And then, of course, the follow -up, following question of how can we then develop policy responding and funding approaches that are able to respond to that becomes even more difficult. But there may also be political sensitivities that uh, surround this intersection between climate change and migration. In a continent that, that was scarred uh, by the 2015 and 2016 crisis, um, studies that suggest that human mobility is and will be an adaptive strategy for communities to respond to climate-induced uh, changes may be a very difficult subject to broach. So in this webinar, together with all of you, we will explore some of the policy options and funding approaches to how to deal with climate adaptation and migration. The Commission has proposed that for the next funding cycle, the one from 2021 to 2027, that it will spend 
25% uh, of the budget on climate-related actions, compared to, for example, 20% in the past budget cycle. And yet, um, when we look at Europe's investments in relation to climate-related actions, only a small proportion is, for the moment, dedicated to fostering um, adaptation strategies for communities dealing with some of these sometimes very severe consequences of climate change. And so together with our distinguished set of panelists, we really want to explore what could be further done in this area. We know that national and EU policymakers are very much concerned for the moment with the COVID-19 pandemic, and rightly so. Next to the, the public health concerns, there is now, of course, a looming economic recession. There are predictions that, uh, for example, the, the, the economy of the euro area may contract with 3% this year. And yet, it's also really important to note that, for example, The Economist, its intelligence unit, has estimated that if uh, climate-related effects are not controlled over the next years, that by 2050, the global economy may contract with 3%. So this is a very important issue, and we look forward to exploring that with you. Let me now first turn to François Gemmen. As I said, he directs the Hugo Observatory on Environment, Migration and Politics at the University of Liège. And there he will start coordinating the Horizon 2020 research project Habitable, which seeks to advance the understanding of how climate change does and will affect migration and displacement patterns. Francois, I turn to you. It would be great if you could uh, provide the audience with a kind of a broad state of play of where we are in terms of policy options and funding approaches to um, climate adaptation and mobility. And if you could also reflect on some of the past lessons in this particular area. Francois, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much, Hannah, and thanks for having me um, as, a, as a panelist. And, and I, I would like really to, to commend the Migration Policy Institute for organizing uh, a webinar on the topic of funding, which is uh, very often when we discuss the issue of climate change and migration, which is often a topic that remains completely unaddressed. It seems to be a kind of blind spot uh, in our discussions, as if there were something dirty about discussing uh, money. So the result of that is that we continue discussing a lot of policy options and policy alternatives and things that we should be doing, uh, things that need to be ongoing, but we don't spend enough time discussing how much these policies would cost and how much they would uh, bring in as well. Uh, and, and therefore, I think that there is really an urgency to discuss the funding of policies to address climate change and migration. If we don't address the funding, then these policies will remain forever in the limbo and will never be implemented because any policymaker that is serious about implementing a policy will need to know exactly what are the costs and benefits of implementing such a policy. Um, if we look um, and in, the, in this introductory statement, I will try to focus on some of the key policy directions uh, that can be taken and where the funding issue is not addressed. Obviously, one funding uh, and one policy priority at the moment is the idea that migration could be a way to adapt to climate change. Uh, for a very long time, migration was considered as a failure to adapt to the consequences of climate change. And yet, uh, from field studies, we could see 
that many migrants were actually using their migration as a strategy for them to cope and adapt to the impacts of climate change. Uh, in 2010, uh, in the Cancun Framework for Adaptation in the Climate Negotiations, this was officially recognized. Uh, and despite the fact that migration is now officially uh, somehow recognized as a potential adaptation strategy, there is no real funding that would enable uh, migration to unleash its full potential as a migration strategy. So the result of that is that increasingly people are forced to move in reaction to climate change, but don't really have any kind of incentive to relocate uh, or to flee away from harm uh, if we were serious about implementing the idea that migration can also be an adaptation strategy. Another direction that is currently taken as part of the climate negotiations is to consider that migration should be a loss and a damage that need to be compensated for developing countries. Uh, initially, when we started discussing about adaptation, there was this impression that it would be possible to adapt to all possible impacts of climate change. But soon enough, we did realize that it would be impossible to adapt to all climate challenges and that there were just limits to adaptation. And for these limits to adaptation, what we framed as loss and damage, uh, we've come to realize that this needed to be financially compensated. Um, migration and displacement are usually thought to be as part of this loss and damage mechanism, but the problem is that there hasn't been any real costing exercise made. What is the cost of migrating? What is the cost of being displaced? What is the cost of relocating? Uh, many of these costs are non-monetary costs, and therefore there is the issue of assessment that is at the moment blocking a little bit uh, this policy. Then obviously, uh, there are also some policies that would seek to prevent migration from happening. Uh, in the year 2018, uh, climate change was recognized as a leading driver of migration in the Global Compact on Migration. Uh, and clearly, the priority of the Global Compact is to try and identify ways that would prevent migration from happening. But the problem is that there is absolutely no funding associated with these policy directions. Uh, and in many ways, the only funding that is at the moment available is uh, development assistance. And the problem of development assistance is that many are now keen to relabel development assistance as adaptation funding, which it is not. And really, the objectives of development and of adaptation are relatively different. Um, so I would say that if we are serious about implementing the policies that would recommend that migration can be an adaptation strategy, if we are serious to implement the idea that the loss and damage related to migration and displacement should be compensated, or that some forms of displacement and relocation need to be avoided, then they will need to be appropriate funding instruments. And at the moment, such funding instruments do not exist, neither in the field of climate policy nor in the field of migration policy. And I think that is an extremely important issue uh, that we need to address. 
Another one that we need to address um, if we want um, to make sure that these policies unleash their potential is policy coherence. Uh, it is not common to discuss about climate and migration in different policy fora, but the problem is that the policy directions that are discussed are very often inconsistent with each other. Uh, so we're really at risk of providing billions of funding on the one hand and another billions of funding on the other hand, and these two funding schemes might just cancel each other if we don't insist more on policy coherence. And I think that this is, this is a very crucial challenge. When we look at the way climate change and migration are discussed in the climate negotiations or in the migration negotiations, it is obvious that clearly they're not discussed on the same par and that not the same policy directions are recommended, which doesn't mean that they directly contradict each other. To some extent, they can be complementary. But I think that uh, some idea about what the funding would be and where it would come from would really help us a great way in uh, beefing up the policy coherence here. Finally, uh, to conclude this introduction, I wanted to say a few words about private funding. Uh, very often when we discuss policy options, we discuss only public funding. We should not forget about private funding as well. Uh, we know that, for example, remittances sent by migrants to their families at home represented in the year 2018 $529 billion of dollars. And yet we know that such remittances are used primarily uh, to fund personal expenses, usually uh, related to immediate need. If we were to find a way to incentivize people to spend these remittances in collective adaptation projects, I think that we would come a great way and possibly development assistance with matching programs could help pool these resources of private funding so that they can fund adaptation projects. Uh, private money doesn't need to come only from individuals. And I think that uh, companies and insurance companies will have also a great role to play in trying to incentivize or disincentivize where people settle. Uh, it's important to keep in mind that in the global south, only 3% of the goods are insured at the moment, which means that uh, there is a great need for insurance to play a greater role in the global south, but obviously we would need strong regulatory frameworks because we cannot consider the global south as, a, as just a new market uh, for insurers. So it is extremely important that this issue of insurance is discussed uh, as part of an international framework. Final point that I wanted to make is that at the moment, uh, if we don't implement these policies as soon as we can, the only policy that will remain left is a policy of relocation. Uh, you might have seen that the government of Indonesia has decided uh, last year to relocate its capital city, Jakarta, from the island of Java to the island of Borneo. Obviously, this will have a kind of tremendous cost to build up a new capital. Obviously, this will uh, also bring in some additional benefits. Uh, but at the moment, the, reloc the relocation costs are borne only by the government that decides on this relocation process. And as more and more of these processes will be needed in the future, I think that we also need to find international mechanisms that would ensure 
some kind of responsibility bearing or burden sharing uh, when it comes to relocation. And I think this will also be need. With this also be this will also need to be supervised by some kind of international agencies. And the moment there is a real need for a kind of clearly identified funding stream, also within the international system, not within, not just within the national boundaries of the government taking the decision. So this is a very broad overview of the different policy options uh, that are needed. I think that's really the first step. If we want these policy options to be more consistent with each other and to become real possibilities for implementation, we would need to do some form of a costing exercise, which is, I believe, the preliminary step uh, towards identifying some possible funding streams and channels. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Francois. That was really interesting, um, the overview that you gave and, and starting with some of the lacks for the moment in, in this field in terms of the fact that you're saying some, some of these financial instruments are, are missing, but on the other hand, um, then also shedding light on what some of the private funding actually can achieve, um, how we can uh, pull those to, to make sure that we have a more collective adaptation strategies, but also your call, I think, in terms of a kind of a a broader governance framework to, to guide that exercise, both in terms of uh, making sure um, yeah, that there's a strong regulatory framework, as you said, but also in relation to relocation, your call for an international agency to better supervise those kind of developments, I think is really interesting. But you also made, of course, the strong uh, points about policy coherence. Um, and I think that's a nice link with uh, our next panelist, Dorotea Ryszewski. As I said before, uh, she heads up the global program on human mobility in the context of climate change uh, at GIZ. And in the past, she was a director of the Morocco country office of the Heinrich Böll uh, Foundation. And uh, uh, turning to you, Dorothea, um, you head up a unit which is quite maybe unique in its setup in bringing those two policy themes that we're discussing here today together in an institutional setup. So um, it would be interesting for audience to hear what are some of the kind of the motivations that underpin the decision to set up this um, uh, unit, some of its ambitions, what it wants to do. But then I think um, your big contribution to, to our webinar is really to show some of the concrete examples of the work you've been doing with third countries in this particular area and some of the challenges and efforts that you've uh, faced there in doing that work. Thank you. Thanks, Hanne, and thanks to the MPI team for having invited me and GIZ to contribute to this discussion. I'd like to structure my thoughts today into three aspects. First, I'd like to present the global program and human mobility in the context of climate change and its institutional setup. I'd like to say a little bit about climate finance for HMCC in general and present some of the partner demands and examples that we got to know within our work and uh, say some words about HMCC finance in times of COVID-19. The global program uh, of human mobility in the context of climate change, which I'm going to be abbreviating the next 10 minutes to GPHMCCC, was set up uh, in 2017, mandated by the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development as part of the ministry's initiative tackling the root causes of displacement and reintegrating refugees. The context was the Paris Agreement of 2015, the refugee situation 2015 in Europe and Germany, and the preparation of the Global Compact on Migration in 2017, as well as the COP23 under the responsibility of Fiji, which was held together with Bonn in 2017 in Bonn. 
In this context, the German government received concrete demand by Pacific Island states to assist in the governance of uh, human mobility in the context of climate change. The objective of the program is that the development-oriented management of internal migration, disaster displacement, and the voluntary and planned relocation in the context of climate change has improved. We're doing this currently with a budget of 10 euro million, and we work with partners in the Eastern Caribbean, in East Africa, in the Pacific, the Philippines, and selected countries in West Africa. The outputs of this program are threefold, supporting international policy processes and the German development cooperation concerning HMCCC, generation and dissemination of knowledge, and the support of project partners at regional, national, and subnational level. As Hanne pointed out earlier, the global program acts at the intersection of climate change, migration, and disaster risk management, and this setup is mirrored by its institutional setup. Our commissioning party, the BMZ, is managing us via the division that's in charge of climate policy, uh, second division that's in charge of policy issues of displacement migration, and we're cooperating very closely with the third division that's in charge of peace and security and disaster risk management. And I think this setup is a very good example for the cross-sectoral approach that's necessary for tackling HMCCC challenges. As far as climate finance for HMCCC in general is concerned, I believe that there is a window of opportunity. As Hani, you said in the introduction already, both themes are high on the political agenda. So there are potentially many opportunities for financing HMCCC. The German Development Corporation, for example, dedicated in 2020 a budget of 500 million, million within a special initiative tackling the root causes of displacement reintegrating refugees. The 2018 budget of climate finance by the German government was 3.37 billion euro. And there are many funding streams for humanitarian aid for disasters. However, only a very small share goes to HMCCC programs covering human mobility and climate change in an integrated approach like this global program are very rare. And the German Development Corporation therefore is a pioneer with this project. In parallel, regarding financing of HMCCC, the approach of the German government is a holistic one, addressing the causes of climate-induced human mobility through climate risk management approach, including mitigation and adaptation measures. I'd like to present you three examples of how our partners address the funding needs. I'll start with Fiji. As you all know, adequately implemented voluntary relocations, including a participatory and human rights-based approach, are very costly. Currently, the government of Fiji has earmarked around 40 communities for relocations due to sea level rise and other climatic impacts. The number is expected to increase. A set of 800 communities is on the list of the government of Fiji. Therefore, last September, the government of Fiji created the Climate Relocation and Displaced People's Trust Fund as an innovative approach to cover relocation costs. This fund, trust fund will on one hand be financed through seed funded with a percentage of the revenue from the environment and climate adaptation levy. On the other hand, it will be open to international donors to contribute. New Zealand is the first donor that contributes to the fund with 2 million New Zealand dollars. The government of Fiji has asked GIZ for support in setting up an assessment framework which helps to estimate relocation costs. And in the next one and a half to two years, New Zealand and Germany and the government of Fiji will cooperate with their respective funding and expertise to make this trust fund work and to address the challenges of relocation. A second example is the multi-partner trust fund for the GCM implementation. 
The MPTF was called for by the Global Compact on Migration and established in 2019 by the UN Network on Migration. It's financed by contributions, with Germany currently its biggest donor. Out of the first implementation examples is a joint proposal from IOM, ILO, UNOPS, PDD, UNHCR, supporting EGAT at the Horn of Africa concerning HMCCC policies. We believe that this is a great opportunity for pooling funds and expertise and providing targeted and coordinated support. Obviously, there is the challenge for coordinating now bilateral and multilateral funding streams and partners need to be strong to coordinate all these measures. A third example picks up a point that Francois made um, on insurances. It's an area that we are exploring that's not institutionalized yet and that we find very promising and very interesting. Climate risk insurance tools provide poor and vulnerable states and individuals with swift cash payouts and disaster-related skills and knowledge to cope with impacts of natural hazards, such as hurricanes, floods, or droughts. By helping to build resilience, climate risk insurance tools may secure and create the conditions that allow people to make free decisions on staying or leaving, and in doing so, reduce displacement risks. We did a first analysis on climate risk insurance and migration. Uh, at the program, and this analysis highlighted that there is a potential impact of climate risk insurance on migration decisions. However, there's a general lack of evidence proving this correlation. So together with our partner, the Commission of Population in the Philippines, we commissioned a study, a field research in two regions with similar risk profile and one region with a high climate risk insurance penetration and a low penetration in the other. From this case control study, we expect the first indicator if there is a significant impact of climate risk insurance on migra migration movements and how climate risk insurances would need to be designed to have an actual impact. Due to COVID-19, we could not start the implementation of the study, but as soon as it will be possible, we're going to start the implementation. I'll move on to my third and last point, uh, HMCCC finance in times of COVID-19. As you all know, there's a threat of diverting funds to COVID-19 response away from other sectors, and also the slowdown of economic activity will lead to a reduced availability of funds. However, we believe that COVID-19 and HMCCC are highly linked. I would like to give two examples. The rural-urban migration as an adaptation strategy to cope with income losses due to reduced agricultural yields is under threat as it doesn't work in times of lockdown and the informal sector is very hard hit by counter-pandemic measures. So strategies how labor migrants and the household could be supported to compensate for loss of income and remittances should be explored. Second example is that we observe that the costs of disaster displacement are much higher when COVID-19 measures need be taken into account. You need more space in evacuation centers, in transportation means, increased hygiene measures are in place, etc. This was, for example, witnessed when Cyclone Harold hit Vanuatu and Fiji earlier this year and COVID-19 measures were in place. So our recommendation is that more financing for HMCCC in COVID-19 is required. Thank you, Hanne. Thank you very much, Dorothea, for that very comprehensive overview, also the, the last examples as to the impact that you've observed on COVID-19. Uh, but I think the example that you gave uh, in relation to the German context about the different kind of portfolios, the different kind of funding streams available, and how your unit 
is trying to tap into some kind of the, the intersection. I think it was really interesting to hear, but also your links with what Francois was saying in his uh, introduction, not only about the insurance options, but also he was calling for the fact that we also need to reflect that if in the GCM there are certain elements put forward, what are some of the cost resources that we need to be made available to implement And I think your example nicely complemented that, but also his call for more kind of investment in um, cost-related exercises uh, was nicely illustrated by your example of how you're working now together uh, with the Fiji government in making sure that there's a good assessment of the cost uh, um, related to, to relocation. So thank you very much. I think it's very good uh, complementarity of the of the different contributions. And let me now uh, turn to Ms. Moa Westman. As I said before, she's a gender specialist and social development climate action coordinator at the European Investment Bank. And there she leads work to identify and promote synergies between, on the one hand, the bank's climate action investment, but also its social development and migration and forced displacement. So let me turn now to you, uh, Moa, and it would be really interesting if you could shed a bit more light on, on that kind of intersection between climate adaptation and migration um, and work that's being done currently in terms of the, the strategy that's being developed at the European Investment Bank in this area, but also some of the efforts and challenges that you have faced while doing that. Thank you, Moa. The floor is yours. Uh, I'll follow up on many of the points made by Francois and Dorothea, and I'll use uh, a couple of slides to support my, uh, my intervention. And first of all, uh, just to introduce the institution that I work for, uh, it's the European Investment Bank, which is the largest multilateral provider of climate finance. Since 2016, we have invested about $84 billion in different types of climate actions in Europe and uh, beyond. Uh, to further step up our ambition for the critical decade, we have recently committed to, by the end of this year, stop financing any activities that are not aligned with the temperature goals of the Paris Agreement and to by 2025 uh, dedicate 50% of our total financing to climate and environmental sustainability actions. And of course, as we have heard today, increasingly the links between you know, broader social development and climate change are being uh, recognized across various thematic areas. And we know that climate change is a main driver of forced displacement as a result of extreme weather events and natural disasters. In 2019 alone, there was 24.9 million, so almost 25 million people internally displaced due to such event, and a figure that is likely to, uh, to continue rising if, if we don't stop this trajectory. We also, of course, know that slower processes of climate change and environmental degradation is affecting livelihoods and are a key drivers of rural to urban migration. We also know that the pressure on natural resources, climate change, can in turn contribute to fragility and conflict, which in turn is a driver of uh, migration and conflict as well. Really not just about climate fragility, there are multiple variables at play that create push and pull factors for the movements of people. Resilience to unforeseen shock is another important aspect to address in order to prevent large unsustainable movements. And um, the European Investment Bank's approach to migration and forced displacement aim to support a transition to movements of people that are humane, safe, legal, 
productive and based on enhanced economic choices, including in the context of a changing climate. So we do this by investing in regions and areas that are vulnerable to migration with an intention of supporting job creation, financial inclusion, and tackle barriers to private sector growth more uh, broadly. Uh, to channel our, the type of financing that we provide that is large scale, we prim primarily work through local local banks, through microfinance institutions, but also through private equity and venture capital funds that has a focus on uh, different areas of social impact. We, of course, also work with public actors, with municipalities to support climate resilient and low carbon public and social infrastructure projects that much more broadly enhances people's quality of life and prepare societies to, uh, to future shocks. And such investments entail you know, a mix of loans, technical assistance, and professional um, funding. And under our new uh, climate ambition, we are looking at how we can more strategically and intentionally finance climate actions that have high social benefits, including those that strengthen people's economic resilience and support more humane and safe movements of people. So we are really looking at bringing these two approaches more closely together. And in doing so, what we are looking at specifically are climate or environment eligible investments that also strengthens the resilience and adaptive capacity of people that provides employment and income opportunities, especially for economically or socially marginalized individuals, or enhances the access to and benefit from low carbon and climate resilient infrastructure services that we uh, finance in collaboration with public authorities. And as already uh, funds are financial intermediaries, um, and we can look at offering specific uh, services through these options, for example, to have dedicated credit lines for farmers to develop and distribute uh, climate risk insurance or support uptake of climate resilient practices. And this links to many of the examples that uh, Dorothea explained in, in much more detail. We do look beyond targeting uh, refugees and migra migrants to ensure an approach that reaches those facing the greatest barriers to accessing finance or employment opportunities to build longer-term resilience. For the clients that we work with, so the financial intermediaries, this is of course also an opportunity to expand the companies as many smallholder farmers and vulnerable people are, are unbanked. Uh, on the infrastructure side, we have uh, worked with public authorities in Serbia, just to give one example. Uh, to build back better after uh, natural disasters by, com by constructing climate resilient public infrastructure in deprived neighborhoods affected by migration, but that were particularly also hit by, uh, by flooding. Of course, a challenge for us and to, for many other actors is how do we attribute impact of investments on types and scale of movements of people? And we, uh, as the European Investment Bank, do not seek to do this directly, but rather to work along a longer-term trajectory of inclusive growth, resilience building, climate adaptation, and mitigation. So 
So moving forward, building on some of the points I mean made out through the, um, this webinar today, we want to build a stronger link between our climate and social ambitions, including those linked to forced displacement and migration. And we are currently in the process of developing a climate bank roadmap, which will outline our strategies for how we increase our financing for climate and environment action between now and 2025. And uh, we would like to invite you to our uh, engagement website. You can see a link there on the slide where you have the opportunity to provide written inputs to us to really help to shape our thinking of how we can really do this, including from a social de development and migration perspective to ensure that we have a more integrated approach as we, as we move ahead. Uh, and with that invitation, I'll, I'll stop. Thank you, Anne. Thank you very much, Moa, for giving an overview of, of the work that has been uh, going into the, the uh, developing the strategy at the European Investment Bank. And uh, it was also really interesting to hear some of the examples that you've given in terms of how you're thinking through how climate investments can actually also support economic resilience. And in a moment, I would love to turn back uh, to you on that because uh, we have a follow-up question on that. But before I do, um, I just wanted to remind our uh, audience that there is, uh, as I said in the beginning, there's no voice Q&A but you can actually use uh, the chat function on the right hand of your screen and you can send us your um, questions uh, there. But maybe uh, to launch our q and I'll, I'll turn back to, to Moa. Thanks very much, as I said before, for your introduction. Um, maybe following up um, from your, uh, in your point that you made about the, the social dimensions of, of climate change and migration, uh, we would love to hear um, what kind of inputs or ideas of information that would be useful to hear from you for your side uh, from external actors that maybe can help to to shape the thinking um, and reflections on your part at european investment bank as you go forward on this and if they if people do have these external actors have ideas um, how they can then best uh, share this with you so thank you very much for uh, yeah shedding light on that thank you uh, thank you Anna. can you can you hear me well Yes, we can. Thank you. Okay, great. Uh, so really what we are looking for are, you know, different ideas and concrete examples of investable opportunities that can help to strengthen people's adaptive capacity to climate change and resilience in the wake of disasters. So as some of the examples that I gave, we have identified, you know, climate resilient agriculture for smallholder farmers, particularly in fragile, fragile contexts. Uh, in one of them, or urban infrastructure, including water supply and sanitation, as some of the areas where we can have these type of synergies. So, we are, and we are also seeking to identify those sectors and specific geographies that might come under the greatest duress in the future as a way of informing our approach to migration and, and forced displacement. But there might be many other opportunities uh, that we could seek to, to invest in that would um, simultaneously promote you know, climate goals and economic feedback and suggestions uh, on such opportunities that, that you might have. Um, and just a slide though, as we are a provider really of uh, kind of large scale financing and our ticket sizes are fairly big, uh, a challenge for us is sometimes to find partners and clients that really have this dual focus. So partners that we can uh, invest in that has an equal focus on climate and social impact, including migration, and that can absorb the type of financing that we uh, provide. 
So we primarily provide loans and equity on a commercial basis to address market failures and support sustainable growth. And to some extent, but quite um, limited, this is complemented by, by grants and technical assistance. So we also very much welcome, you know, kind of inputs and ideas on public or private actors that can have a focus on or that already has a focus on climate and uh, economic resilience goals and that would be able to absorb the type of financing uh, that we provide that we can partner with uh, moving, moving forward. Uh, and at the moment, uh, the best way to formally provide us with these inputs is really uh, through our Climate Bank Roadmap Stakeholder Engagement website. You can there submit actually inputs either via a questionnaire, but uh, there's also opportunity to submit inputs formally via, via email. And you had the, uh, the link to that on, on the last slide of my presentation. Uh, so that's um, at the moment that's the best way to to get in touch with us to 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 advise on us the, on the best way forward. Thank you, Mo. I've also put uh, the slide back on so people can uh, can have a look there. Um, I would like to now turn to Francois. Um, maybe if I can ask you two questions. Sure. And one there was a question about um, some kind of knowledge gaps or uh, additional research that could be done in this area, very broad, from 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 researchers uh, on on uh, that are listening into to this webinar today. And then there's also. Um, Another question about um, the insurance financial instrument that you were talking about earlier as, as a potential way forward and something to consider. And um, the participant asked if you could elaborate this a bit further and how that then supports adaptation processes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, on the knowledge gaps, there are indeed many uh, knowledge gaps. But the first thing that I want to say is that really these knowledge gaps should not stop us from developing uh, policy responses. Uh, I think that there is immediate needs for policy responses, and I think that uh, even though there are still gaps to be filled, I think that research on the topic has progressed uh, immensely over the last few years, and, and I think that today we have uh, a series of elements, at least, that can already uh, guide us towards the development of uh, of actual policy responses. <clears throat> this being said, there are still uh, knowledge gaps. And to me, there are two uh, knowledge gaps in particular that need to be addressed. The first one is about the efficiency of the policies that we've deployed so far. Uh, it's now been about 10 years since the topic is, I would say, on the political or the policy agenda. Uh, and I think that now we need to take a look back and see what has worked what has not uh, worked. And I think that um, in that regard, it will be extremely important to take into account the role of perceptions, of individual subjective perceptions of environmental changes. And in the research we conduct on the field, we see very much that people's decision to migrate is very often based on their perceptions of climate change rather than on the actual climate change. And very often there is a huge or at least significant discrepancy between how people perceive climate change and how climate change actually translates into the region where they live. And I think that when designing policy options, it will be important in the future to design policies, not just on the basis of the forecast or projected climate impacts, but also on the basis of how people perceive these impacts. And I think that clearly um, in the past, when designing policies, 
the role and importance of perceptions was not sufficiently addressed. Another important knowledge gap, I think, is to really understand the determinants of the migration decision at the individual level. Uh, we often have worked with large aggregate of numbers projecting millions, people, millions of people on the go, but this really doesn't tell policymakers uh, when and why people will decide to migrate. And this is really one of the key objectives of this new research project that was mentioned in the beginning in, in the introduction, this project called Habitable, that will seek to really determine on the individual level what is the tipping point that make people decide to migrate? Why do people stay in regions that are really at risk of climate change? Why do some people migrate even sometimes after a small environmental disruption? This is really what we will try to understand in this project. And I think that this can be a game changer for the way we decide and design policies in response to climate change and migration. So these are two knowledge gaps. There are probably uh, many others, but I wanted to focus on these two uh, in particular because they have a direct relevance for policymaking and funding. Now, turning to the second question about insurance, um, I think insurance indeed has a great role to play um, when we try to mitigate the climate impacts uh, in the global south. As I said, in the global south, only 3% of the goods are insured, which means that most people have no insurance whatsoever. There is an important role that will need to be played uh, by uh, institutions and authorities. For example, in India, uh, there is an income replacement scheme called the Mahatma Gandhi uh, Income Replacement Scheme for people who depend on uh, subsistence agriculture in rural regions, which means that when people lose their livelihood because of uh, floods or because of drought, they are able to count on a replacement income that can some, very often help them buffer up the loss of their primary income and uh, avoid uh, a forced displacement for them. Uh, in other cases, we've seen farmers pooling their resources together and creating micro-insurance schemes so that they have a kind of replacement income when they lose their primary source of income. Uh, I think that the compensation also for the assets that are lost because of climate disasters will need to be covered at some point by insurance. But as I said, uh, this is, it is important that such insurance schemes are really framed and regulated by authorities and also possibly by international cooperation. We cannot just uh, let the people that are most affected pay the premiums of assurance, and we cannot just uh, let uh, climate change become a huge opportunity, a huge market opportunity for private insurers. So this is a very uh, tricky question, but one that really will need to be addressed uh, if we want to compensate for the loss that will be induced by climate change. 
Thank you, Francois, for uh, answering these questions. Uh, so I take away in terms of the kind of knowledge gaps, on the one hand, a warm invitation to policymakers not to let them <laughs> keep that from uh, taking further action in this area. But you uh, mentioned that uh, analysis of efficiency is a really important one. Like you say, the, the perception of what climate change will induce in communities and then linked to that, of course, the bigger, broader question that many have wanted to study and have studied in the past, what are some of the key factors and how do they interact to then stimulate a person to um, have that ambition to migrate and, and migrate effectively is a really important one. And, and thank you for making it so concretely um, what it means uh, in terms of the insurance uh, options that you put on the table earlier in our discussion. And if I can use this particular element to, to turn to Dorothea, um, two, two questions on the one hand. So um, linked to this, uh, you mentioned that you had commissioned a study, right, uh, just before the, the COVID pandemic, and this has now caused some delay. So there's some interest to, to hearing more about what this study aims to do. Um, so maybe if you can um, give some information. And there's also a general interest on, on any lessons learned that you've had so far uh, in your position as, as, as the, the head of the unit and the team you work with in terms of working together with partners and how to best assess their needs and priorities. Thank you. Thank you, Hanne. Um, concerning the study in the Philippines, it's a qualitative study where we would like to, our partner would like to interview households uh, and uh, ask for their needs in terms of insurance coverage and how uh, a potential coverage, if they don't have any, would possibly change their decision to stay or to invest further in their land um, or to possibly also plan to move and to build up an existence somewhere else, so to adapt uh, by moving. So it's, it's quite a rich uh, qualitative study. Um, we'll, we'll share the results. Uh, I, I guess we'll, it should, be had, should have been ready right by the end of the year. I think it will be mid-21 when we will have results, uh, hopefully. Um, it's it's basically really uh, making uh, making interviews. I can't tell you the number right now on the number of interviews, but it it's, it should be quite relevant. Um, and seeing how uh, the existence and availability of insurance uh, determines uh, migration decisions, and also uh, what kind of amount uh, is available is able for farmers and uh, uh, small um, households to pay for such an insurance, uh, and how what sort of uh, climate phenomena it should cover. Um, concerning your second question, um, our experiences with partners, they obviously have been very rich. I'm very grateful for that experience of the last uh, two years uh, working with partners in the Caribbean, uh, the Pacific and the Philippines. Um, what, how we usually start uh, and what was uh, quite uh, helpful, I think, is that we um, gather stakeholders from the, the three sectors, really, migration, climate, and uh, disaster risk management. We bring them together, um, and it's quite astonishing as these partners in their settings usually are so busy with their sectors, so they don't really meet and exchange. So um, with our help, they have set up technical working groups where they 
exchange and where we did analysis of the existing policies and where we tried to identify gaps where policies should include elements of the other sectors, uh, where they should speak more to each other, where they should establish uh, structured communication channels, communication platforms. We also set up communication channels of the regions, uh, intra-regional exchange between those different partners um, because they have a lot of interest to learn from each other. For example, the Pacific Islands are quite advanced in terms of relocation. Uh, the Caribbean Islands are very interested in learning from these experiences. Um, in the Caribbean, there's a lot of um, uh, experience um, with um, uh, movement from one island to an, another island, so over-border migration in the face of a disaster. And we have uh, our partner now from IGAD that are very interested in these free movement uh, policies. Um, so that's basically one very important uh, second approach, so not just bringing the partners in their own region together and um, assist them in, in developing shared approaches, but also uh, having this intra-regional exchange. What we um, realize is that many partners are very well uh, set up and prepared in dealing with rapid onset uh, events and phenomena. Uh, the machines function and they know what to do and everybody is in place, but the slow, it's the slow onset events that really create uh, a headache because in the in the busyness of the day, um, one one deals with what's there, and these upcoming things are very often not considered. Uh, and and there's also a lot of question marks: how what's going to happen, and how can we address it? So what what we are um, trying to do is to assist our partners to. Um, to have a structured way of thinking ahead. Uh, we did this, for example, via a method that's called foresight uh, planning. So we did scenario workshops where we brought uh, actors from these three sectors together and they, they sat together three days in a closed room. It was before COVID-19. And they um, thought about possible scenario with the parameter that they know what 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 are the conditions that we have and that might exist in five to ten to fifteen years um, to to get an idea of what they should tackle with policies and and they were sort of forced to think about these issues um, in a structured way in in the Caribbean for example we, we took this one step further we uh, had uh, then with um, with the consulting our partner the OCS to uh, develop a strategy on uh, what to do next so really develop concrete steps uh, and this strategy uh, the OCS will now implement with its partner with its member states um, and it's it's the sort of work plan for the technical working group on on HMCCC I could go on with examples, but I stop here. Maybe there are other questions. Thank you. Thank you, Dorothea. I think there's. I also saw there were some questions actually about um, whether those those um, studies are actually available publicly. I propose that, um, and there's also questions about the slides. I propose that um, what we normally do is we send all participants um, a link to the the audio um, recording. And we'll also insert then uh, links to the studies if these are available. I'll, I'll uh, connect with you on, on that as well. Um, if I can uh, maybe then turn to, to Francois. Um, there's also, um, um, you mentioned at the beginning uh, the, the problems with some of the, the funding if it's mostly located in development area. Um, I wonder if you could um, 
yeah, uh, share some more insights on that in, in the sense that it may result often then in a displacement of funding, the, um, different actors, different kind of situations may be competing for resources, but also in your previous writing, you've made a, a, a clear point about the need for both ex-ante and, 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 and post kind of types of funding. So, and, and some of the differences in terms of the impact, if we focus only on responses um, that are and funding instruments that are available after a disaster has happened um, and some of the risks of that. But if you could also shed light on, on some of the, the potential ex ante and what, what is possible there in terms of financial instruments. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. Well, this is, this is a broad question, but uh, indeed, I think that um, when we look at uh, the funding for migration policies, uh, at least in Europe and in most industrialized countries, the funding for migration policy is primarily uh, targeted at, survey, at uh, uh, funding border surveillance and border controls or expelling irregular migrants uh, from Europe. I know that uh, the cost in France, for example, of the deportation of irregular migrants every year is 500 million euros, uh, which means that we spend a lot of money on trying to keep the borders closed, uh, we don't spend uh, a fraction of that money trying to organize migration in a proactive way that would be in the benefit of the migrants of the receiving countries and of the countries of origin. And if we could spend only one fraction of the money we spend in trying to keep the borders closed and trying to keep the irregular migrants uh, at bay, uh, I think that we would really make a huge headway. And I think that when we look at uh, the money that is spent in development assistance, very often that money uh, is spent on preventing migration or avoiding the fact that migrants would have to move. Of course, this is important in some situations, but in others, it will be important to mobilize that funding to organize uh, migration. So really, it's very important that migration funding is not just money that we use to try and deter migration, but also money that we use to organize migration proactively, and that will take probably a cultural or psychological revolution for many policymakers. And it is also important that development assistance is not, used, is not just used to try and prevent migration, but also to organize uh, migration, and also to make sure that the receiving countries and receiving regions have the means and the appropriate means to welcome uh, appropriately these new influxes of migrants. And at the moment, many regions, and I think in particular about the global cities in the south, are overwhelmed by the influx of migrants from rural regions. So I think that we really need to diversify the money that comes from migration policies, but also from development assistance. Thank you very much, Francois, for uh, giving that uh, interesting response. Um, I think many will have taken due note of that. Um, we've come to the, the end of uh, our webinar. Um, I see there's more questions. Unfortunately, we have not been able to respond to all of them. Um, there were several questions also um, asking for links to the study that I said before. So uh, in our follow-up, we will make sure to, to share with you what is already available. Um, and feel free also to reach out to us if you have further questions. Um, I would like to warmly thank um, all the, the three panelists for joining us today and for their interesting um, 
interventions and also uh, responses to the questions that were raised by our audiences. Um, as I said before, if you have um, further questions, do contact us at events at migrationpolicy.org um, and the audio will be later available on our website. Uh, if there are reporters uh, on the webinar, they can contact us at uh, Michelle Mittelstadt in Mittelstadt at migrationpolicy.org and you can receive also MPI updates by going to our website and the link is there below. Um, I wish you all a very nice day and thank you very much for joining us today and listening in and for um, yeah, raising the questions that you did in the Q&A and chat function. Thank you very much and goodbye.